The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. We're in our sermon series in Acts, The Spirit-Powered Church. And we want to continue today in chapter 20, beginning at verse uh, 17. So if you read along with me, Beginning of verse 17 in chapter 20, it says this. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came in the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. And I have declared to you, both the Jews and the Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard and remember that for for three years, I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to God, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak Remembering the words of Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this, he knelt down with them and he prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, for your word, as always, we give you thanks. It is our life, and we confess that we have no life apart from your word. And so, as always, we pray for ears to hear and hearts to follow and bodies to obey. And God, today, I pray 
for the gift of preaching. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Paul is changing course. He's shifting from his mission in Asia, and he is setting sights towards Rome. That's where he eventually wants to go. But first, he has to go to Jerusalem. So he calls the elders of the elders of Ephesus to meet one last time to commission them and the church to take up the task that God has laid before them. And here's what Paul has experienced. Humility. Hardship. This has been hard and humiliating work. I mean, there's been arguments in Jerusalem. There's been prison in Philippi. There's been mobs in Thessalonica. There's been court hearings in Corinth and riots in Ephesus. And even Jesus, when he called Saul, he said, I will show him the things he will suffer in my name. And so later, Paul pins this in Philippians. From Philippians 3, verse 10, we sing this song, at least we used to. I want to know Christ and the power of his rising. Share in his suffering, conform to his death. When I pour out my life to be filled with his spirit, joy follows suffering and life follows death. We made it to a song. He shared in his suffering. And it's this time of Lent that we too share in his suffering. Some of you taken these cards and have, have participated in Lent with us. We extinguished, Shad extinguished the candle the fourth Sunday of Lent today. My wife and I decided we'd give up something for Lent. I'm kind of odd. You're not going to think this is much to give up, but it is for me. I gave up watching the evening news. How about that? <laughs> it's been so good. <laughs> My wife, she gave up Facebook for Lent. So last week uh, was her birthday, and we were out celebrating her birthday. And she commented, ah, of all the days, it's my birthday. And I don't get to see all the birthday wishes on Facebook because I'm grounded from Facebook. And I went, what? You're grounded from Facebook? She's like, no, no, that's not what I meant. I go, babe, that's not what Lent is. Can you tell she has a, she has a teenage son, right? You're grounded. Sometimes Lent feels like we're grounded from something. But Lent is not some kind of punishment. Lent is actually a training. Lent is training us for the work that God's Spirit has for us to do. To give up something and to share in His suffering. And to prepare us for the work that God has us to do. And so Paul, it says he's compelled by the Spirit.
And it says, I don't know what's going to happen. I know I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and not knowing what is going to happen, that's an odd place to be, to be compelled by God's Spirit. Have you ever been there? To be compelled by God's Spirit to do something, to go somewhere, to be someone, to be compelled by God Himself and not know what's going to happen. Yet for Paul, he turns and he says this. Even though I know, I don't know what's going to happen. And even though the Spirit warns me that there's going to be trouble ahead, I consider my life worth nothing. But here's what Paul considers worth something. He says, Actually, here's what Paul considers worth everything. He says that I may finish the task that God has given me, that I may testify. I may testify to the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls these elders and this church together. And he commissions them to take up the task and to take up his mission. He's no longer going to be in Asia. He's going on to Jerusalem and then Rome. And by the end of this farewell, they weep because they know they're never going to see him again. And he says, what I've begun to do, what God has begun to do and I've begun to follow, I want you now to do this. And so he gives it to the elders and to the church. And I want you to notice something. In verse 25, it says this. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I find it interesting that he says, I proclaim the whole will will of God and then he goes on and gives them a warning he says I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole gospel to you so keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers because after I leave savage wolves will come in and they will not spare anyone. Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. So be on your guard, Paul says. Now Paul is leaving and he's leaving this with the church. He's leaving this spirit-powered mission that he's been following this whole time and he's leaving it with the church in Ephesus. And he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole gospel to you. So as the Spirit has called you, be on your guard because here's what's coming. And it's not hard to imagine what Paul may be talking about here. For everywhere Paul has gone, 
and every time he proclaims the full gospel of God, there's always something that happens. There's always some trouble that comes up. The full gospel of God touches almost every aspect of life in Asia. And he says, be on your guard, watch out. Because they're going to kind of come and take that away from you. So if you go back to Acts 15, it says this, beginning in verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The gospel affects the social world. For in a Jewish social world, the world is divided up nice and neatly into Jew and Gentile. This is how you separate out God's people. This is actually what's going to cause Paul problems that he says he doesn't know that he's not aware of. There actually is going to be a riot in, in uh, Acts 21 about Jew and Gentile. And when you proclaim the whole gospel of God's grace, it tends to upend the social construction. It tends to upend the way the world is socially constructed. Because the whole gospel brings Jew and Gentile together and destroys social constructions in the world that divide us. And he says, be on your guard because when you proclaim the whole gospel, it's going to affect some customs and practices. So if we go back to Acts 16, he says, here's what's happened to me in Acts 16, verse 20. Then they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and to practice We get used to thinking it certain ways about ourselves. And we begin getting, getting used to doing certain things in certain ways. And as we practice and as we get older and as we become more accustomed to living life the way we live it and practicing the way we practice, it's really, really hard to imagine living any other way. just travel it's called culture shock because all of a sudden oh they live differently it's like the air you breathe you're not aware you're breathing air until you're outside of your own space but when we preach the whole gospel when we embody the whole gospel, it upends the cultural climate with its customs and practices. The whole gospel calls into question even our ethnicity, our national identities, with all that go in our practices and customs, and sets us squarely as citizens of the kingdom. Paul knows 
be on your guard. Because when the whole gospel of God's grace is lived out, this happens. In Acts 17, beginning in verse 5, it says this, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Because in this world, Caesar reigns. But Paul says, when the whole gospel of God's grace is proclaimed and embodied, it upends all the political arrangements of this world. The whole gospel rearranges our political loyalties to where the only political loyalty that makes sense to us is that Jesus is Lord. Paul says, be on your guard. Because when you embody and proclaim the whole gospel, here's what happens in Acts 18, it says, Now the Berean Jews were, in more, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result, many of them believe, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The religious world is oriented towards legal codes, proper religious observances, maintaining good moral order, but when the gospel of grace arrives, it upends the religious order. And the whole gospel reorients us towards God's unending, unimaginable, unstoppable grace. And finally, this is probably what Paul's really warning them about. When he says, be on your guard, because he's talking to the elders in Ephesus. And Leah read earlier what just happened in Ephesus. There's probably a reason why he calls the elders to him. He doesn't want to go back there. The whole city arrived at the amphitheater, 
shouting. And he says, be on your guard. Because when you proclaim and embody the whole gospel of God's grace, it says in Acts 19, 25, he says, he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. This is the business of, right, making idols. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only for our trade, we will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Ephesus was a huge center of revenue in Asia. And we know this was disrupted quite a bit by Christians because there's a letter we have from uh, uh, Pliny who wrote to the emperor Trajan in the late second century. And he basically, he was writing about efforts he was making to reverse the effects, the negative effects that Christians had had on the economy. And he talked about how that sacrifices are being bought again although there was a time when it almost had dried up. There was a reason they protested. There was a reason they shouted. This was their livelihood. Their life depended on this market. Our life is dependent on our economy. At least mine is. I think yours is too. And even though we try to come by it honestly, our life is dependent on it. Stock market, GDP, consumer spending, job creation, expansion, growth. It is a beast that we try to constantly tame but ultimately have little control over and our lives depend on what we receive from the economy. But when the whole gospel of God's grace is embodied and proclaimed, it upends our economy. The whole gospel makes our life dependent not on what we receive, but what we give. For Paul writes, in everything I did, I showed you that this kind of hard work that we must do this hard work to help the weak. Remembering the words of our Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. When the whole gospel of God's grace is proclaimed and embodied in the church's life, our life is no longer dependent, as crazy as this sounds, it's no longer dependent on what we receive from the the economy, but what we give. For Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive. That is a life of grace, of giving. I have a good friend named Fred Ligon. He is the minister at the Williamsburg Christian Church in Virginia. In fact, I just had him Skype in to a class that I teach on evangelism discipleship this past week. And I've heard him tell this story several times. Fred has, uh, and his church have, have uh, over the past, oh, I don't know, seven, eight years, have walked with people in homelessness. And they've walked with people in, out of homelessness into a secure, stable life. And in the process, he doesn't expect homeless people to come to their church. In fact, he says this. He goes, we're going to help you. And it was like, and you don't have to come to church at all. And of course, they do for a little bit, and then they don't for a while. But they walk with them long enough, and many of them have joined. And there's this one particular woman who they've walked with out of homelessness. Her name is Amy. And as is fairly common, not all, but there's a good percentage of people that are walking in homelessness that struggle uh, with mental health issues. And so when you walk with people out of homelessness, you're often walking with people that are coming into church with mental health issues. And Amy was one person that they had walked with, and Amy had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And Fred talks about he was one Sunday morning, they don't have a very big church building, but they have, they've grown enough to where they have two services. So between each service, he's standing up there, he's talking with the worship minister, and uh, he hears Amy's voice loud and very disruptive. There had been a family that walked in, husband and wife, and they were dressed, guy had a suit on, and she was dressed very nicely. They had two kids. And they came and sat in the middle. And they came and sat near Amy, just trying to find a seat. And he wasn't really paying attention until all of a sudden he hears Amy's voice say, Why are you sitting in my seat? And Fred said he looked up and Amy was totally flustered. And that family turned around, walked straight back out the aisle and right out the door. Fred said, I didn't know what what to do. He said, do I go talk to that family? Do I go talk to Amy? I was just kind of shell-shocked. So he decided to go talk to Amy. And what he he knew was that Amy, they just switched her medication and they were trying to make the adjustments. And he got over to Amy and she just had her her head in her hands and she was just crying and he was consoling Amy. And then after he consoled Amy for a little bit, he he rushed out to see if he could find that family. When he got out to the parking lot, he looked around and he couldn't find that family at all. 
And he said, I rushed out there not knowing what I was going to say to them. I mean, I was going to tell them I'm sorry that happened to you, but I, was, I wasn't going to tell them I'm sorry for Amy. And then he says he stood out there for a, a few minutes before he had to go back into the service. He said this. Here's what I would have said to them. I would have said, I'm sorry this happened to you, but that's our friend Amy. And Amy's welcome here. And you're welcome here. But we understand if this is not a place for you. And Fred had decided that day, he realized something. He said that, pro- that family probably left and there were probably 50 other churches that they could have gone to and felt comfortable in. But Amy had been kicked out of two already. There was no other place for Amy to go. Fred said, it's not a good church growth strategy. But when the whole gospel of God's grace is proclaimed and embodied, when the church is shaped by the whole gospel of God's grace, people are reconciled. It changes our practices. It reorients our allegiances. In other words, when our allegiances now are to Jesus is Lord, that reorients our allegiance to the way God sees the world. And particularly how God sees Amy. Do you know what that means? At least one thing that means that Fred can teach us today is that when his allegiance is to Jesus as Lord, that reorients his relationship to Amy. That's what that means. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. It means being concerned with what God's concerned about, being concerned with who God is concerned about. And Paul says, be on your guard because socially, culturally and politically and religiously and economically they're going to come and they're going to try to take the gospel, the whole gospel of God's grace from you be on your guard for this is what a grace filled life